You are at the right place at the right time. Welcome to the Discover the Word podcast with Kevin Perney. This is a ministry of discovertheword.net. Hello again, Kevin here, and it is so great to be with you today on the Discover the Word podcast. Today we have a wonderful message from Scott Ardenovis, and he is senior pastor at Grace Church of the Valley. And his message comes from the book of John, and he focuses on John 14, 12 through 14. Uh, it is a wonderful message. Uh, he brings out some uh, information on a recent survey that uh, is of some concern, but he really brings out a good message from the Word of God. So without further delay, here is Pastor Ardeveness. Well, this is a real joy for me to be here, and I am so glad to to be in this chapel with you as this semester winds down, as well as to be with uh, Dr. Moeller and feel as though I do know lots of his staff over the years, some that are friends from years back and even get to catch up with them now. And we have indeed been blessed by Dr. Moeller many times at our local church and so have become fond friends over the years. We're grateful. In fact, I remember one time Dr. Moeller just years back when a young girl had gotten in a just a, a horrendous car accident and it had taken her life. It was the week that he was preaching there and just God used Dr. Moeller in an incredible way to shepherd that family in the loss of their 16-year-old daughter in a way that in an early church knit our hearts together with him and then over the years and now we share friendship. Many of some of our staff is here at Southern Seminary. I just got to talk to my son-in-law on the phone who's a missionary in Albania and he will be on his way by way of online uh, to study here and get his Masters of Divinity. So just super thankful that we can be here with you and share the Word of God with you this morning. You know, I was reading, maybe you've seen that in the last couple of weeks, uh, Legionnaire Ministry comes out every two years with, uh, with this agenda called the State of Theology, and I'm always interested to get it because it's a survey that really kind of helps uncover not what America thinks or what the U.S. thinks, but really... They, they take the theological temperature on the evangelical world and the church and with those who are claiming to be believers. And here we are in the middle of an election, even this day across the United States. Many things will be decided, but this was interesting in what was decided in the way that evangelicals apparently think. And let me just say the reports, most of which are not good. Here was statement number three. I'll give you the statement Maybe you can answer it in your own mind, and and then I'll tell you what the answers were according to the findings. But statement number three, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 
And how would you respond to that? This is a little quiz for you before finals come. I think that would be very understandable to us with the gospel. But the findings of the evangelical world were 51% of the, the people surveyed agreed with that statement. That God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 51%. Statement number 11, which I think we would count as basic as the song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, the statement said, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. That finding was 52% of evangelicals agreed with that statement. Just not even understanding a basic framework of the depravity of man as outlined in Scripture. And thus, if you don't understand the depravity of man, no one really knows their need of the gospel, flatly contradicting the Bible. On one encouraging note, evangelicals overwhelmingly agree with statement number 13, that God counts a person as righteous, not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith. That finding on the basic tenet of the gospel was 91% in agreement with that. I really don't think that surprises me that much. That's good, but that was followed by another statement, statement number six. Here was the statement, Jesus is the first and created being by God. 78% agreed with that. I mean, this is just unbelievable what this survey reveals. And while most evangelicals affirm the doctrine of justification by faith alone, they are confused regarding the person of Christ. Jesus, the first and greatest created being, is a heresy espoused by a man in the early part of Christianity by the name of Arius. And there's other statements that reveal confusion. Statement number 30 was, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. 60% of the evangelicals surveyed agreed with that statement. And I thought, that's not good. I've spent the last 30 years of my life preaching and teaching objective truth. But evidently, that's not in the mind of many I mean, I think one thing is true, students and faculty, is that we've got to get our Christology right, and we've got to get our pneumatology right, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I want you to open your Bible this morning to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, and I thought I'm expositing through the book of John in my local church at Grace Church of the Valley, and I thought I would bring you to this Simple but profound section of scripture, really identified there in 14, 12 through 14. Let me read that to you, and I trust in my prayer and on this day of election, maybe as the semester winds down, that you would find encouragement and hope in this passage. It's, it's a phenomenal passage. The words almost are, you almost have to read them twice to get them. Jesus said, truly, truly, 14, 12, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What a statement. Let me see if I can briefly just set the context for you. As you open your Bible, you're in John 14. We read from John 14. It is what we would call the Passion Week of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he entered in on shouts of Hosanna at the beginning of the week, and later in that week, they will shout to crucify him. But as we come to John 14, I just remind you, this is what we call the upper room discourse. It is the last week of his life, but it's not just the last week of his life, it's the last night of his life, his earthly ministry. It's Thursday night when we come into this section in 13 and 14. He has just celebrated with the Passover uh, with his disciples. He has told them repeatedly that he is about ready to depart and go be with his father. So he is just hours before his crucifixion. Judas has just went out of the room. He's left the room. He's betrayed the Son of God. He is off to do his, his duty of evil. In fact, in chapter 13, Peter would proclaim great things for Christ. And Jesus said, before this night is over, you will deny me three times. And if you're one of the 11 in that room and you heard Jesus speak that to your recognized leader, Peter, you hear that your leader is about ready to depart, that where he's going, they cannot come, that they will be left alone, that Peter himself would betray him. Maybe they were thinking, what will become of the rest? And so in John chapter 14 are the words that Jesus gives these bewildered disciples in the midst of, a ter- in the midst of their turmoil. And as you track through chapter 14, there's five declarations that he's given to these disciples to give them hope. And I really just want to bring you to a couple of those declarations. He first gives words of comfort that you know in John 14, let not your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me and my father's house are many rooms. And he encourages these disciples with the hope of heaven that I'm going and preparing a place for you. And when you see that phrase, I'm going and preparing a place for you, it's not as though he has to go and put a construction team together. He is going, if you will, by virtue of his cross, by virtue of his soon resurrection, and by virtue of his ascension in his work on the cross to prepare that place called heaven for us. And then in that same context, he gives wondrous claims, I am the way the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. These are all words of encouragement. Then he declares these two signposts, namely his words and his works that reveal both the oneness that he has with the Father and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now then as you come to 12 through 14, he's moving us in this text from comforting the disciples to these wondrous claims of his oneness and deity, to hear his mission that he leaves with the disciples, the mission that he leaves to us this morning. I mean, the question would be, in the absence of Christ that we find ourselves in, at least physically, how did they carry on without him? How do we carry on without the physical presence of Christ. How would these disciples be empowered, if you will, to move forward with the gospel in his absence? 
Imagine if you were there that night in the upper room and you heard that the one you had been following for three years was about ready to depart. And what Jesus Christ does here in 12 through 14 is supply the power needed. And he supplies the power needed for us to carry on in two demonstrable ways. And the first one is, is that he declares a wondrous consequence. A wondrous consequence. Zero back in on verse 12. Truly I say to you that whoever believes in me will also do the, the works that I do. And then that phrase, in greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. I mean, that is just a stunning statement at face value, is it not? It is an incredible statement made by our Lord. He tells those bewildered disciples, not only to not let your hearts be troubled, but you will do what I have been doing. And then he tells them, you will do, and he uses that phrase, greater works than I do. Now, he mentions that phrase, works. Those are miracles, usually stated in the New Testament. In John's gospel, they're referred to as signs. Now, what's he talking about here? We'll do greater works. Have you ever read that and wondered, what are the greater works? And certainly, the charismatics have their time with this passage interpreting that wrong. But what are the greater works? Now, I want you to understand, again, look down at verse 12. He's obviously giving them a post-resurrection promise that the verbs that are placed here are futuristic. You can see that. He says that the greater works than these will he do. And so he's giving a post-resurrection promise. Let me just at least say this initially that this promise was given to the disciples, that the the disciples did do mighty works. In fact, it tells us in Acts chapter 5, 12, that they did many signs and wonders, it says there, that were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. None of the rest in Acts 5 dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women, and so that they even carried the sick, imagine this, into the streets, laid them on cots and mats, and as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them, and the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick, and gathered them, and the afflicted, and the unclean spirits. And then it says this in 516, and they were all healed. So the apostles did, as we transition from the Gospels to the book of Acts, perform miraculous signs. It states that as such in Hebrews chapter 2. But primarily here in John 14, our Lord is not addressing the disciples' miracles, for even the disciples' miracles couldn't eclipse the power of the Son of God. So what is he addressing here on the greater works? Certainly, you can't be better than Lazarus, raising him from the dead, and in the King James, he had stinketh for four days. 
What are these greater works? Certainly they didn't multiply the bread and the loaves and feed what they said was 5,000 men, which may have been up to 15,000 people. Certainly these men didn't walk on the Sea of Galilee. Certainly these men and none in our own day are going to turn water into wine. D.A. Carson, the eminent New Testament scholar, rightly contends that in John's context, greater works cannot mean, number one, more works. Number two, it cannot mean more spectacular works. And even number three, they can't be more supernatural works. What is Jesus getting at here when he says greater works these will he do? Well, go back just for a second, just a couple verses. Jesus said there in verse 10, do you do not do you not believe that I am in the Father, the Father is in me? Watch what he says. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his, you would think he would say words, but he says works. In other words, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he says, he doesn't speak on his own authority, but the Father who dwells in me is working his works through his words. In fact, in another place in the gospel, it says this is the work of God that you believe in the one whom the Father sent. So here you get a little bit of an expanded category that his words are in association with his works, that his works is the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. But just to press you a little bit further and to encourage you, maybe as you go home for the holidays, what are these greater works? Certainly as you look in the context of John 14, he is preparing his disciples, as I said, for his departure. And as he prepares them for his departure, he is going to send them who? The Holy Spirit. In fact, glance down in the text in 416. And you'll catch the futuristic verb. I will ask the Father. And in 16, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. He is making that statement here in the context of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Glance down in your Bible in 14, chapter 14, verse 25. There it says, these things have I spoken to you. He says, while I am still with you, but the helper, verse 26, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, I love this phrase, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Primarily, certainly one of the significant roles of the Holy Spirit, far from being mystical, far from being syncretistic, you can see it there in 26, the Holy Spirit's going to teach you to the disciples and he's going to bring you into remembrance all that I have said to you. So as a result then of his departure to the Father and the sending of the Holy Spirit, the disciples then will not only do the works which Jesus did, yes, miracles in the physical realm in the book of Acts, but even greater works Namely, they, us, will do miracles in the spiritual realm. So here the greater works of power are not the miraculous. They are greater works in scope 
and extent of the gospel. I think Jesus, what he's talking about here is the worldwide spread of the gospel. The greater works is the miracle of a changed heart. The greater works of the conversion of a soul through the proclamation of the word of God. Here seems to be the rationale that because of his departure to the Father, the Holy Spirit will come in a new way. The Holy Spirit, according to the book of Acts, will come in power. That will be power for us to bear fruit and proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me just demonstrate that for you. Turn in your Bible to the book of Acts. Again, we're just looking at this thought of greater works. Do you remember, certainly, as you've read through the book of Acts, in chapter 1, in verse 5... Here, it says, John baptized with water in 1.5, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We're in that transition time. He says again, in the future tense, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Will be, the Holy Spirit is promised to come. Certainly glance down at Acts 1.8, but... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And it's interesting, and you know this, that when that power comes upon you, you, in verse 8, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so they're waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. They're waiting, if you will, that when that spirit comes, that they will be witnesses in Jerusalem, and you understand, around the globe. That spirit did come. Look over in Acts chapter 2. You know that account in 2.1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, when they were all together in one place, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house and where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Look down in verse 7, what were those tongues? They were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all those who are speaking Galileans? You say, what specifically was tongues? It's answered in chapter 2, verse 8. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? They were given the power of the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues. They were hearing the proclamation of the gospel in their own respective language as hundreds of thousands would have come for Pentecost. Now, look in chapter 2, verse 33. It says there, speaking of his death, it says, therefore, being therefore exalted, speaking of Christ, at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured uh, out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In other words, you can see there that that Spirit only came after his death and after his resurrection, and here even his ascension into glory. You say, well, what happened with the coming of the Holy Spirit? Look at 2.36. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to him, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. And so those who received the word, watch this, were baptized, and there were added that day, what? 3,000 souls. So, as Christ died, as he was resurrected, as he ascends into glory, the Holy Spirit comes, Peter preaches the word, and on that one day, 3,000 souls were added. Look in your Bible over at chapter 4 just for a moment. Here, they were, it's just interesting that it's always the proclamation of the word more highlighted than the miraculous signs. As they were speaking to the people, look at verse 2. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 4. But many of those, watch this, who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about, what? 5,000. Listen, students, this powerful extension of the gospel is made possible by the phrase back in John 14, because I go to the Father. In other words, they're greatly discouraged that he's going to depart. And what he's doing is he's showing the wondrous consequence of his departure, that as he goes to the Father after his work is done, the Holy Spirit comes. And he sent the Holy Spirit to empower the disciples for mission. He is sent to you in your salvation, giving you the Holy Spirit to empower you as well. Look at it this way. Jesus works and his ministry, in one sense, were limited to his person. They were limited to the place that he was in. Now, some of you remember that he just gave the word and he healed the boy at a distance, but the father was still talking to Jesus when he sent him away. We, we understand that. But the Holy Spirit at the coming of Pentecost was made available to all the disciples in all parts of the world at all times. In fact, the Holy Spirit was not sent until our Lord returned to his Father. Look back in John just for a second. Go back to John chapter 7. It's very clear here. Jesus speaking about the rivers of living water in John 7. And he spoke of that in verse 8, that out of the, 38, excuse me, out of the heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When you see that phrase, 
glorified, or we speak of his glorification, it's referring to his death, it's referring to his resurrection, it's referring to his ascension into glory, but the Spirit wouldn't be given until Jesus had died on the cross, resurrected from the dead, and ascended into glory. Look over just for a moment in John 14 again. In John 14, we're back at that place. And and again, I'm just describing that the greater works are not the greater miraculous signs. The greater works is the impartation of the Spirit of God to his bewildered disciples to give them power to carry on the mission. Look again at verse Chapter 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And interesting in verse 17, it's the spirit of truth. So we learn here just a little bit that the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is a teacher, and here it is the spirit, it bears witness to the truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. And I love that phrase. He will be in you. In other words, the power is going to be released. It's the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's going to come attested to with the power of the Holy Spirit. Look over at chapter 15 again in verse 26. When that helper comes, I will send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. This is what the Spirit of God does. He will bear witness about me. The Spirit, far from being mystical, far from being so subjective, his chief role is not only the Holy Spirit, he brings to remembrance the person of Christ But there he will bear witness about me. Look at 1527. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So they're going to be used to bear witness. Look over at chapter 16 and verse 7. This is again in that upper room discourse. Nevertheless in 16.7, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the parakletos, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's to your advantage. Now you say, well, Scott, is this only given to the disciples in that apostolic community? And there's some question, who's this given to? But I don't think so. Look back at chapter 14, 12. I don't want you to miss this. Jesus said there, truly, truly, in 14, 12, or amen and amen, I say to you, watch this, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do. And so here, Jesus would depart from the world, but the wonderful consequence is that he sends the Holy Spirit to the disciples that they would be able to accomplish the greater works. Again, not in miraculous miracles, but in extent, in scope of the proclamation of the gospel. Let let me say it this way, just to encourage you, maybe at this last week here of school. For three and a half years, reason with me, The Lord Jesus Christ never stepped foot outside of Palestine, right? Yet, 
as that gospel continues in the book of Acts, the gospel, as Pentecost came, as the Holy Spirit came to fill the believers with the word of God, it says this in Acts 17, 6, that these men have turned the what? The world upside down. What this is communicating here is that the Holy Spirit now empowers you to participate in the proclamation of the gospel. Let me say it another way to you. At Peter's preaching, at Pentecost, as we just read, 3,000 believers were added in one day. That is more than the entire earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. That's not to magnify the apostles. The word that we preach is Christ. But at least if you look back in the book of Acts, when they gathered in the upper room, there were 120 believers there after three years. But as the Spirit comes, as he goes to his work on the cross in his subsequent resurrection and ascension, sends the Spirit We have been released to do greater works through the proclamation of the word of God and the Holy Spirit who convicts in John chapter 16 of sin and righteousness. Listen, the greater works is the conversion of souls. It is the miracle of a changed heart. It is the empowerment of the spirit of God. Let me just ask you a question. Do you think that man who was born blind who was given his sight in John 9, is more grateful that he received his sight or do you think he's more grateful for 2,000 years that he received the forgiveness of his sins from the Lord Jesus Christ? See, I think we downplay the extent and the scope of the gospel through the proclamation of the word at the expense of wanting the miraculous. When I think from the book of Acts, he demonstrates that the greater works is the power of the gospel. In fact, you remember the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and spent all of her money at the hands of doctors who could not heal her. Do you remember that account? And Jesus was walking and she touched, do you remember that? The fringe of his cloak. And do you remember Jesus, it says in the gospel, felt power go out of him, which is uh, how that was, I don't know, was it, and, you know, he, obviously he's omniscient. He knew that, and he turned around and he said, who touched me? And the disciples, of course, at that point said to him, there's all these people, and you said, who touched me? But his eyes must have met that woman, and the woman came and dropped to her knees, and he wanted to let her know that it wasn't her touch that healed her. Jesus wanted to let her know that it was her what? Her faith that had made her well. Let me ask you, do you think she's more joyful that she was healed of a physical condition? Or do you think she's more glad into all eternity that she had received the forgiveness of sins by faith through Jesus Christ? Listen, when Jesus talks about the greater works, he's talking about the power that releases you into your community as you go back home. As you go back at Thanksgiving, or as you go back at Christmas, the Holy Spirit has been given to you. This has been a tremendous help to my own life. There are times when I'm walking about in the day, knowing that Jesus Christ left us on this earth and empowered us for the mission. He's no longer physically here, but he empowers his people to open their mouths. So even last week, I came into the cleaners. I was picking, I don't know, maybe the suit up, I don't know. And I said, what's your name? 
She said, my name is uh, Delilah. She goes, that name isn't always associated with good in the Bible. I said, well, you're right, but that's amazing that you knew that. And I opened my mouth, and I began to share with her the good news of the gospel. Listen, students, I just wonder how many times we've let this doctrine of being in Christ, of being baptized in Christ, being a recipient of the Holy Spirit who now lives in us to give us proclamation. We have the opportunity and extent and scope of the gospel to share this good news. Let me just share a few things with you. I was just with my son last week. My son Johnny um, works at a Christian camp in California up in the mountains. It's called Hume Christian Camp. They have thousands of high school students. But as part of that ministry, they go to summer missions. He said just last month, they went into Papua New Guinea. And he said, Dad, I can't believe it. He just told me this a couple weeks ago. He goes, I can't believe what's happened in Papua New Guinea. I said, tell me what happened, Johnny. He said, well, Dad, you know, I went last year. I said, yeah, you went last year. And he said, this one particular family and one tribe in Papua New Guinea had spent nine years translating portions of the New Testament and the story of creation, fall, redemption. And they just got that to the tribe last year in its beginning content form. Johnny said, we were there. And he said, not much happened. He goes, but Dad, I just got back. And when I gathered there again, there were 50 brand new believers in Papua New Guinea from one very remote tribe. And all I know is that as the word was proclaimed, it's converted. And Johnny felt like these people in Papua New Guinea were genuinely converted as he spent time with them. God's at work, is he not? My son-in-law and daughter are a missionary in Albania. They went to a place called Pokerdets just three years ago. In fact, I don't know if you knew that when uh, communism fell in Albania in 1989, was that 90? They told me that in all of Albania, there were only five believers in the whole country. You have to understand this. This is not hundreds of years ago. This is 1990. Five believers in the whole country, and I doubted them, and they said, oh no, there were only five believers. They thought it was the only self-expressed atheistic nation in all of the globe. Well, they planted a church there three years ago, and now there's an outpouring of people who know Christ just in their little town of poker debts. Listen, beloved, you know this. Church history would tell us after the cross of Christ that the next 300 years, Christianity closed nearly all the temples in the Roman Empire and numbered its converts by the millions. These are the greater works down through the centuries, and it's continuing today. May God use us, amen? in the days ahead to fill us with the good news that you would accomplish the greater works that he's designed us, his bride, to do. Would you bow your head with me? We're gonna have just a closing song in just a moment, but as we do, listen, I wanted to just encourage you as this semester draws to a close, as maybe even some of the physical resources are (laughs) depleted, as our country in which we live, the United States goes into election tonight and the results today and the results follow. Recognize that the greatest power is given to us, that we are residents 
in our hearts of the Holy Spirit whose chief end is to glorify Christ, to glorify God. And he'll do that through the proclamation of the word and use us in the process. Would you just take a moment, maybe the Lord's put someone on your mind. Maybe you've been here new as a student and you go back home to unsaved family and relatives, maybe even friends whom the Lord has laid on your hearts. Ask him to give you an opportunity because what follows next there is prayer. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Pray. So he tells him of this wondrous consequence and then he gives him a wondrous capacity to pray that the Father would be glorified in the Son. Father, we love you. Father, may we be mindful of this. May we be mindful of the person of Christ. Thank you that you've left us and empowered us to do it in his physical absence, though the Holy Spirit resides in each of us. Father, may we be your change agents to continue in Acts 17, 6, to turn the world upside down for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. May he be exalted. May he be lifted up. May our mouths be filled with praise and the word that, Father, the Spirit might convict the world of sin and righteousness. We love you and give thanks in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's message and want to thank you for joining us on this Discover the Word journey today. If you have a moment, would you join with others in going to iTunes and leaving a good review for us? Thanks. We also invite you to visit our website, discovertheword.net. Until next time, have a wonderful day and may God richly bless you.